Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Welcome to the second Investing Masterclass episode on the Australian Investors Podcast. In the next 45 to 60 minutes, you will go on a deep dive with me into the topic of commodities. We'll be speaking with some of Australia's top experts, including Kenneth Chug from GlobalX, Atchison Consultants, Kev Tui, and Waddle Partners, Jamie Nemsis. You'll discover what you need to know about the commodities market overall, how big it is, how to cut it up, the difference between gold, silver, and other types of precious metals, the difference between hard and soft commodities and the way we get exposure to them, how to perform due diligence on commodities funds and strategies, synthetic exposures and why they're not always perfect in a portfolio, and how experts use commodities such as gold in portfolios in a sensible way. To help us navigate through this emerging theme, we'll be joined by Kanish Chuk, who walks us through commodities overall. So he cuts up the sector and he introduces us to, of course, the GlobalX Gold ETF, Australia's largest gold ETF, as well as the different options available within the sector. Then Kevin Tui, an experienced investment consultant and director from Atchison Consultants here in Melbourne, explains how his team performs due diligence on commodities funds. Finally, Jamie, a director of Waddle Partners, financial planning and the co-founder of the Inside Network, explains how to actually implement some of these strategies in a portfolio. If you're watching us on YouTube, just know that Jamie's brought some props into the studio and they are great. The videos will be up on Rask's YouTube channel in the next week or so. So if you prefer to watch, jump over there, subscribe and have a look at the Masterclass series. I hope you enjoy this Masterclass series on the Australian Investors Podcast because they take quite a while to put together. First up, you'll hear from Kanish Chug of GlobalX, which is the new name for ETF securities here in Australia, although GlobalX has been around for quite some time. Kanish starts by explaining how to break apart the overall commodities asset class. So Kanish, the commodities sector as a whole is a pretty big, unwieldy thing for a lot of people to think about. Yes. Can you give us an overview of the commodities sector, maybe as an asset class, how you break it down, uh, things like that? I think um, from an Australian perspective, we're a little bit sport for choice. You know, when you think about the fact that, you know, we literally, you know, resources are in majority of everyone's in Australian investors' portfolios, whether it's mm-hmm. a mining stock, BHP, Rio, whether it's, you know, a 
ETF from that side. So if you think about it, how do you break it down? So commodities, uh, you know, you got your mining stocks, then you've got the ETFs that cover, you know, global global mining, you know, exposure, whether it's, you know, gold or general resources as a sector. Mm-hmm. But then you go down the path of actually physical commodities. Now the commodity exposure could be a synthetic, an ETF form. Um, so there's sort of there's an element there, I think, for Australian investors. We sort of we sit there and go, okay, where do we go now? You know, mm. what, what do we do? Mm. Maybe um, it's worthwhile explaining the difference between synthetic and, and physical. If you, if yeah. So from that. an ETF side, so think of it like this: so if an investor wants to take exposure to oil, now that's, that's a good idea. You want to take the exposure to the spot price of oil. How would you go about that? Mm. From an ETF side, we can't provide you physical exposure to oil. If we were to do that, like we do with our gold ETF, where we actually buy the gold and store it in a vault and have it allocated to you as an investor, that's fine. But in oil, we're not gonna hold tankers, mm. you know, and you know, oil barrels in some way, et cetera. So you have to have it as a synthetic. So the ETF will actually buy futures contracts that essentially give you that exposure. So sometimes people think when they buy a oil ETF or a soft commodity ETF, we actually had a lot of soft commodities ETFs here in Australia about 10 years ago, you know, things like wheat, grain, etc. But if you can't physically hold them, the best way to do it is through synthetic. But when an investor buys that, they just need to understand that it's not the actual physical. So when they see that, you know, on the news, they say, oh, oil's gone up. That may not be reflected in their ETF because it's holding futures contracts and the management of that is slightly different. Mm. Does that make it more expensive than a physically backed it fund? Can, it can make it more expensive. It may also mean that there may be some tracking error and tracking difference. So essentially how much the fund deviates from the underlying exposure, because it all comes down to the actual fund manager and their ability to manage those futures contracts and these roles, et cetera. So there's a, it's a bit more technical, but I think sometimes investors go into like a, a, a synthetic commodity ETF, assuming that when they see that commodity go up or down, that's gonna be reflected in their, in their ETF. Whereas like with our gold product, for example, our gold product, if gold goes up, your gold ETF will go up, you know, in, in that same line. Mm. There are so many different commodities. And as you said before, there's almost like the equity sleeve mm-hmm. of it as well, where people buy equities to get exposure to commodities. What would you say uh, maybe a handful of the most common strategies, be they um, by commodity group or if it's, you know, the, the way people get exposure? How do you think about that? I think the best way to think about it is this from an investor standpoint, what are you buying and why are you buying it? So if you want the equity exposure, you're taking on the stock company risk. Now you can buy the single companies, whether it's through, you know, here listed on the ASX or offshore companies as well. You've now got the ability to do that. You know, a lot of trading platforms have made that very easy, but you're taking that company risk and it sits within your equity sleeve. So, you know, we talk about like the traditional portfolio. Mm-hmm. I think you and I have spoken about this quite a bit, you know, 60, 40, 60% in equities. Within that equity sleeve, well, that's going to take a level of risk a little bit higher than what it would be, say, for the commodity side. Mm-hmm. So the commodity in terms of actual commodity exposure, say gold, well, from that element, that's in the alternatives bucket. And the thesis behind holding, say, gold, it's a defensive alternative. It's a portfolio insurance. Mm-hmm. So I think theoretically, you could actually hold a gold mining stock or a gold mining ETF as well as a gold ETF because the underlying thesis from an investment rationale point of view there's two very different things. Do you come across people that maybe try to find a juxtaposition between actually gold bars, like going and buying physical gold bars or any type of metal and the fund structure? Yeah, so I think a lot of people, um, if you're a gold bull, 
And we get a lot of questions in, you know, is your gold ETF, so obviously our gold ETF is G-O-L-D, mm-hmm. um, backed by physical gold. It was the world's first, launched here in Australia in 2003, so quite innovative at the time in mm. terms of an ETF structure. But that structure actually holds underlying metal. We hold it in a vault, it's insured, it's allocated to the investor. The investor essentially has an entitlement on metal, mm-hmm. on gold, and they can even redeem for the metal. But a lot of investors ask us, so do you actually have the gold? You know, where is it? I want to touch it. I want to feel it. So when people are buying gold, sometimes they actually physically want to hold it. Now, we can't give them that, but they also need to understand that when you go out and buy a gold bar, there's an element of um, an entry cost that you may have, the spread that you may have to buy, you know, the gold dealer that you're paying for that. What about liquidity? So, yes, you've got your gold bar. Now you need to sell it. Who do you sell it to? Can you sell it straight away? Can you sell it at the price that you need to sell it at? No, you're going to pay a cost there as well. There's going to be time that it may take to sell that. Mm. Then, then the element of storing it. Do you, do you have to insure it? Or, you know, there was one uh, investor in Perth, I remember she basically had a gold bar, wrapped it up in newspaper, and it was just sitting under her coffee table. And she got rocked, but no one realised that there was literally a gold bar sitting in her, underneath mm. the coffee table. But that's the element of some people really want to go down that path. What we want to do is offer them an efficient way to access gold as an investment vehicle. So it's not going to be for everyone, but we want to make that option available to all. So gold is obviously one of the most popular commodities uh, and forms like the bedrock of many uh, diversified portfolios here in Australia. Are there other commodities or other commodity groups that you see being quite popular? I think what we're seeing at the moment, offshore there's a lot more interest and popularity from an investment standpoint in palladium, platinum, for example, silver. Now, in terms of the precious metals market, gold is your safe haven. There's a store of value. Mm-hmm. Platinum and palladium, not necessarily a store of value. There's an industrial use behind them. So palladium, for example, is used in catalytic converters. So diesel vehicles or petrol vehicles, in terms of the emission standards, you need to use some form of palladium in that catalytic converter process. So as, okay. pe- as cars right now, with all the emission standards that have been increasing, Palladium has really seen a massive rally over the past five years and there's been strong demand for it. More recently, obviously, there's been issues from a geopolitical sense because a lot of palladium comes out of Russia and there's, you know, bans in terms of Russian, you know, exports, etc. Platinum is a similar concept. You know, yes, it's used in some form of jewellery, for example, semiconductors in chip manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So when we think about the elements of some of these metal and their uses, it's quite far and wide. And I don't think we really probably truly appreciate that. And then you go beyond that and you think about what about some of the green metals? You know, what about lithium? Mm. You know, when we think about if we want to get to net zero and we want to be using electric vehicles and battery technology, well, lithium is the main form mm. of that battery you know, technology that we're using because of its lightweight. And the fact that you can basically have a number of different lithium batteries underneath uh, Tesla, you know, put it in ludicrous mode and go for like zero mm. to 100 in you know, under three seconds. But that needs to me that we need to then mine more lithium and high-grade lithium as well. I think that's where Australia's come out really well in that lithium space. So, you know, I look at our ACDC ETF, and that looks at the battery tech side, but it also looks at lithium miners. And on the lithium mining side, it's dominated by Australian companies because our grade of lithium is high enough that companies like Tesla, Samsung SDI, LG Cam, they're buying the lithium from us from the Australian perspective. Um, I think the other side in terms of resources, there's going to be a bit of a shift. You know, commodities are going to see a change. You know, over time, we are going to move away from oil, away from coal. And we're going to move towards things like hydrogen. We're going to move towards things like lithium. 
And when you think about green technology, what about rare earths? What about you know vanadium, for example? There's all these different elements, I think, that we're going to start looking at from a resources sector. And I think that's where ETFs can really come into it because they can give you a one-stop shop in terms of that exposure. So you've got um, a listed fund, like an ETF. Mm -hmm. How do you actually physically go about getting exposure? So you mentioned uh, synthetic exposure through futures. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk us through basically, you know, you as an ETF provider, you as a fund provider, how you get exposure to these different commodities? And you might just want to take us through the lens of gold, but maybe other um, yeah. precious metals as well. So if you think about it, for us, every dollar in our fund is backed by a dollar of the underlying metal. So mm -hmm. we have five precious metal um, ETFs. We've got gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. So when we have net inflows that are coming into the fund and we have to create more units, every time we create more units, we essentially have to go out and buy gold and mm -hmm. store it in our vault and it has to be sitting in that asset allocated account. Mm -hmm. Because the allocated account means that it's attached to the unit trust, which means it's attached to the investor. The investor then has that entitlement, you know, essentially they have ownership on some form of gold. Yeah. And so for us, we work with service providers, authorized participants is what they're called in the ETF industry. And the authorized participants are the one that we engage with to actually get the gold and make sure it goes into the vault. And in return, we give them units of the ETF. How about the risk reward profile? Um, how do you think about, I guess, where the different commodities may sit and the different ways of getting exposure in a portfolio? So I think we touched on the, the idea of that 60-40 portfolio, 60% equities, 40% bonds. Mm. But I'd say probably if you change that up slightly, it's 55-35, 55% equities, 35% fixed income or bonds, and then 10% alternatives. Mm -hmm. So from an equity side in terms of commodities, they would sit within that equity frame, but it's potentially seen as a slightly higher risk. You know, when you think about a company, what's going to be impacting a gold mining stock, for example? Well, the current macro, you know, environment, you may have the actual company, you know, is their mine, you know, the supply of their mine, is it operating? Mm -hmm. Are they having any issues? Where are they operating that mine? Are there any geopolitical tensions that they may need to consider? You then have the idea of, you know, what about uh, exports, you know, supply chain disruptions? So yes, you can mine the gold, but can you get it to and sell it? Mm -hmm. So there's all these different elements that may impact. So the equity risk is going to be slightly higher. So for certain investors, and again, a lot of Australian investors would look at commodity and resource equities. But we also need to educate them around the fact that that is not the only way to get commodity exposure. You know, mm -hmm. we get a lot of pushback when we talk about gold, for example. You know, they say, well, it doesn't pay me an income. It gathers dust. Well, mm. yes, it does. Like, we're not going to shy away from that because it is there as your portfolio insurance. It's your ballast within your portfolio. So it sits in there within that defensive alternative bucket. You know, ideally, you want gold to be doing neutral to poorly because that means the rest of your portfolio is doing quite well. And in 2022, for the first three, four months of this year, equities have gone down, fixed income and bonds have gone down, gold went up. Gold, you know, really supported a lot of portfolios and provided that, you know, downside protection. And that's what you want gold to do. And then you go down the other side on the, you know, we talk about platinum, palladium. Mm -hmm. So they're the industrial metals, you know, even say copper or lithium, for example. Now, okay, we talked about the mining side, but what about the physical platinum, physical palladium? So if gold's more a strategic allocation within a portfolio, so what I mean by that is it's long term and platinum and palladium may be more tactical, you know. If I see uh, exports being banned in Russia and 80% of palladium is coming out of Russia, do I potentially look to allocate more to palladium? 
And do I look to allocate more to platinum because palladium prices have gone high? So will a car manufacturer with the emission standards on the catalytic converters, do they then switch to platinum? Mm. So they can be interchangeable. Platinum's price has really been depressed because everyone's been looking at palladium for so long. So there's elements that are being a bit more tactical with some of those industrial metals versus gold has that safe haven element to it. And then equities sit in that sort of more high risk bucket because of all the different factors that can contribute to their performance. So with all these uh, different commodity groups or investment products, can you give us a sense of the long-term historical risk return profile of them? Yeah, so if you think about gold, you know, over 10 years, our gold ETF has provided an annualized return of about 4%, and that's to uh, the 27th of July. So look that in perspective. It's not, you know, equity markets over 10 years, it's probably done better, maybe 10, 15%, depending upon which Mm. equity market you look at. But that's still positive. And Mm. that's what I was saying. It's not there to shoot the lights out. It's not Bitcoin. You know, it's not going to have these massive sort of spikes of volatility and big jumps up and down in terms of performance, but it's there to really smooth things out. Mm. Um, We have a, a precious metals basket product. So that is gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. And that ETF actually is roughly around 5% over 10 years annualized over that same time period, you know, to the 27th of July. So slightly more, but again, palladium has had years where it's up 50%. Mm. And there's elements there of, you know, that's the industrial driver. That's that tactical allocation. So what I'd say is there's potential to look at the physical side of commodities, but it's not there to really be, especially on the gold side, you know, it's not there to be, you know, the driver of your alpha in your portfolio. It's there to be sort of that ballast. So when we look at the asset class, it's obviously commodities is a pretty important part of a strategic asset allocation for many advisors and professional investors. Uh, who do you look to or where do you look to get your resources and information? So where are you looking to, to get the latest insights on the industry or the sector in general? So I think we're lucky to be in the industry in terms of we have access to you know quite detailed and in-depth information from some of the investment banks and their you know massive you know research teams you know companies mm-hmm. like JP Morgan for example mm-hmm. or HSBC or City but to a lot of other investors they may not have access to those so there are other ways that they can get some insights into from a commodity side you know if you talk about gold I would say the World Gold Council. Mm-hmm. They are a reputable resource. They're an association that essentially just looks at gold. Mm-hmm. And it is amazing the amount of information. They've done actually some really um, domestic-focused, Australian-focused insights into how gold can be allocated within a portfolio and what it actually does. And they've looked at you know, super funds, et cetera. So that is a really good resource. And then you go down the other side, you know, the Palladium um, Association or Platinum or you know, from a Silver Institute. So there are associations and industry bodies that I would say, well, they've got no vested interest mm. and I would look to those for some of the resources around just trying to understand the, the investment case behind those metals. Mm-hmm. The other side of it is I'd say look at those industry bodies. I think they're a really good sort of independent body to consider. And then, you know, outside of that, I think we're also a bit spoiled for choice again because of where we sit in Australia. You just open up the AFR and you're going to get some resource exposure or some resource mm-hmm. article. Um, all I'd say there is, you know, do your research as well. You know, there's opinions out there. There's elements of just making sure you take a step back and, you know, look at it with a wider lens sometimes. Mm, for sure. Well, Kinesh Chung, thanks for joining me. No, thank you for having me. Now we'll transition to Kev Tui, the Director of Atchison Consultants. He starts by explaining what Atchison is 
and what a consulting and research team like Atchison does day to day. Kev, welcome to this masterclass. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm hoping for people that don't know you or the Atchison brand, you can introduce yourself, the brand, what you do, what's your day job include? Okay. Uh, so Atchison, we're a Melbourne-based asset consulting firm. Uh, we advise superannuation funds, dealer groups, uh, endowments, not-for-profits uh, around everything with investment strategy um, from asset allocation, tactical allocation, manager structuring and selection. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we don't manage the money ourselves directly, um, but we, we're, we're the advisor um, for you know, large insiders or, or wealth groups. Mm-hmm. And what does your day-to-day role include? What do you actually do, what do, I do? Yeah. when you sit in the office? Yeah, so look, I'm part of the consulting team, so I have clients. Um, my sort of day-to-day meeting is around our allocation work. Um, so our forecasting models and the sort of asset selection at a, at a asset class level. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at a sector level, my speciality is more sort of fixed and, and private assets. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about commodities today. Okay. Um, and this is a very broad term, right? If we think about commodities in general, there's a full spectrum, which I'm sure you'll get to. But how do you think about the sources of return from this asset class? Yeah, okay. So, um, so commodities, they're, they're actually a relatively unique asset class in terms of you can think about them physically because they are a physical commodity. And, mm-hmm. and so if we, if we sort of unpack what that term means, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a unit of something, whether it's gold or iron ore or wool or all, the, all these types of commodities, which are effectively interchangeable at a certain level of quality. So if you've got Two tons of separate tons of wool and the same quality, yeah, they're, they're relatively uh, indistinguishable. So, um, so, so it, it has certain physical characteristics, and from that, it has return characteristics which you can think through. So, um, commodities don't have any sort of intrinsic incomes, so that, that there's no improvement happening intrinsically with the with the with the commodity. So if you think of gold, it's a lump of gold, it's inert, it's an element, it doesn't, mm. doesn't do anything other than if you put energy into it, you can maybe melt it. But, um, and, and similarly with, with, with the other commodities, you have to do something to, to, to get some change. So that means that compared to say a, a company or a bond um, you know, where you're principally the rest of your portfolio is going to be invested, um, that have some intrinsic improvement to them. Commodities don't, so they're not. We, we wouldn't typically class them as really an investment. It's more of a trading decision where um, its return is derived by the price that I'm paying for it today, and and I expect someone might pay for it in the future. Mm-hmm. So that's what we might term the beta. Um, is um, if I, if I think I can buy something at 100 and, and it's going to be worth 120 in, in the future, but the actual um, so that, that's the beta component, mm-hmm. and, and each of those is each commodity has its own beta, which is derived by the sort of supply and demand dynamics of that that commodity. Um, and then you'll have carry, which so the the, the and which is negative, because commodities in a physical context they cost you money to hold. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's wheat, you need a silo. If it's gold, you need 
you know, security to move it and then a vault and then so all these things cost money. Um, and then typically also if you if you if you take out durables, um, so metal that won't change over time, compare that to wheat that will deteriorate over time. So if as you hold it, its quality might start to deteriorate. So that's a holding cost if you like. Mm. Um, so so sort of you need you need to sort of unpack I mean, those characteristics are common across commodities, but um, you know, how long are you holding it for? You, know, you need to take that into consideration. That's a brilliant overview, um, I must say. Some, um, some investors can get exposure to these things through futures contracts, not just through physical, um, I guess, holding of the commodities. I guess the, the question for you as a researcher and as a consultant is whether you're looking at physical or synthetic, strategies, um, what are the, some of the key determinants that you would say have, uh, make one strategy more suited, um, one particular commodity more suited for an investment portfolio? Yeah, so, so the, a, a derivative exposure um, has different pros and cons. So the, the pro of a derivative contract is that you can get exposure to the commodity and not have to worry about um, the physical um, transport and, and security and storage. Um, so if today you decided you know you wanted to get gold. You, you, mm. Yes, you could you could um, go and buy physical gold. You wouldn't necessarily have to have it. You could it could be in a in someone else's vault and you could rent that, or you could go get a derivative contract and you just have to really make a phone call to a broker and they'll get you a, a, a futures exposure to it. Now. You've now you don't act, what do you actually own? You own a contract that some other counterparty is going to either physically um, deliver that gold at a certain date, or they're going to, or between the two parties, you're going to make good on the difference depending on what the price changes through that time. So it's got different characteristics. A, a derivative, a synthetic exposure. Um, you, you, less, you don't need to worry about physical security, but you need to worry about counterparty security and, um, and sort of any adverse um, exposure that might cause. Now, with a, with a derivative contract, you know, it has different characteristics in terms of sort of the carry component. Mm. Um, so still, if, if we talk about gold, for example, um, or oil, whatever it might be, if you have a futures... Uh, derivative exposure, you're still going to have that beta exposure, um, but you don't have those carrying costs now. You might actually have a positive uh, yield coming from the investment because what actually happens in a derivative contract, you might only have to put up for $100 exposure, $10, $15 of margin, um, and then the balance you're going to have available as cash, so you might be able to generate a positive yield on that. Uh, but then it generates something quite different on the so the physical, which is it's called a roll yield, um, and this is the terms you might hear around about contango and backwardization. Mm. Um, so these are return. So these these don't have occur in physical. It's only with the, with the futures contracts, and this is about the difference of sort of. It's really the supply and demand equilibrium for a future date, and how that might differ to the expected price of that future date. Um, I yeah, yeah. I would love to, for you to yeah. explain how that then creates different environments where you can have that roll yield. 
Yeah. So, so if you think, think through, um, so backwardization, most commodities have a backwardization sort of general average, average sort of term structure for the, for the futures contract. And that means where if you take oil um, and you take an oil producer, um, so take Exxon mm -hmm. as an example, um, yeah, they're generally, their operating business is very linked and exposed to the oil price. So if the management at, the, at Exxon uh, looks at their forward sort of volume of oil production they're expecting to have, um, and they know there's a sort of earnings result coming through in, in three months, six months' time. Um, there's currently a sort of uh, a, an expected price for oil, say, at $100. And maybe the, the expectation is that's not going to move over, over, over the next six months. Um, now, management might make the decision that uh, we could lock in the price of that forward sales mm -hmm. of, of, our, of the oil we're producing, and maybe we're willing to only get $95 for it, not 100 and because we get the certainty of locking that in today. Because if, if you think about them, they're, yeah, they're really worried about the, the earnings line. And if they know their, their you know, sort of fixed marginal costs of, of operating is, is, say, $50 a barrel, and they're able to sell it at 100 oh, they would be able to sell it at 100 maybe they're willing to take 95 and lock it in now. To mm -hmm. get that sort of certainty of of, of, of future, um, but then there's other markets where so so that would be an example of where the the producers are hedging that future, and if you get more producers than consumers hedging, then it ends up getting to a position where you know to to lock in that forward date, uh, the producers have to take a, a lower price. Now other markets you could. Could be in the other, other position where there's more um, buyers of, of the commodity that want to hedge their position. So the other example that's called Contango, and that might be where, um, say, uh, an airline producer, say Airbus or Boeing, they need a lot of aluminium. They look at their books. They've got large amount of orders coming through for their airplanes. They're going to need a lot of aluminium. So again, let's say the price is fifty dollars they might be willing to pay 55 for the sort of supply of the aluminium they're going to need in three months, six months' time. And so they're willing to pay a bit more um, to lock that in on, to, so that they can get some sort of um, certainty around their earnings uh, and, and take the risk off that the price goes to 70 and, and you know, they have to wear that, that additional cost. Mm. Um, so if, if, if you've got a, a derivative exposure to a and you're long a market that's in contango, then you're you've got a you're going to have a return benefit as the as you're effectively buying in cheap um, relative to the expected sort of exit exit value. Yeah, and ba backwardization is the opposite. Yeah, right. So thanks for going uh, into the weeds on that one. Oh, um, yeah, many of us that, that have studied finance would know contango backwardization from TFA or. Uh, from our uni days, and probably don't have that much exposure to it. But I guess you um, researching these managers, researching the strategies and the markets, you see that a lot. Um, so if we think about commodities overall, you mentioned that it could be more of a hedging, uh, maybe even a speculation type thing. Um, in which market conditions would you say are, are conducive to having commodities exposure? 
So obviously the, the commodities that are very linked to production, so think iron ore, think oil, um, yeah, they're going to be very pro sort of economic cycle. And so um, they, they're conducive to, you know, if you've got countries, say China, that, that is, you know, its GDP has been growing significantly over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of iron ore, there's been a lot of commodities that have been used by that economy. So there's been a, a certain tailwind for the commodities. So linked to economic cycle. Um, and then it just comes down to sort of a, a supply-demand equilibrium. So if, if, um, if the world wants more batteries, um, mm. then there's certain commodities that are needed as inputs to those. So you get higher demand. So, and maybe it takes a period for supply to catch up. So then it's positive if you're, if you're a current holder of, of the, or exposed to that commodity price. Um, so it's, it's really, that's for the producing side. And then for the, you know, there's the things like gold that have, you know, there is still economic use for gold in jewelry and the like and, and some, some um, production. But, you know, a lot of it is sort of dig a hole and then dig another hole and mm. put it in the other hole and, and guard it. So, um, it, it does have some connotations around, um, being a, a store of wealth that, that has different, and we can talk about sort of mm. when that tends to work and when it doesn't. Um, but yeah, certainly the, the, there are other drivers that, uh, that may not be so pro-linked to economic growth for some of the commodities. When you deal with um, institutional clients in particular, do you find that there is much of an exposure to say, let's use gold as a good example because it's very popular. Um, is there... Are those clients coming to you and saying, we're looking for exposure to gold or are they a big portion of the portfolios to begin with that you come across? Uh, generally, no. And, yeah. and gold sort of, sort of, our research shows that, um, so we went back and looked at sort of 1900, um, so sort of 120 odd years, um, and, and, and split the world up into different sort of economic uh, regimes mm-hmm. um, linked around inflation and growth and principally gold does well in a sort of deflationary environment uh, or a high inflation high and rising inflationary environment so which are relatively yeah Mm. opposing sides but um they're the two sort of periods that's done well so it's done well through periods sort of on the deflationary side you gotta go back gotta go back to like the 20s 30s 40s and 50s for in any of those sort of periods, there hasn't been one. Uh, there's been fears of it, um, certainly, but it hasn't occurred more recently. And then, of course, we, you know, we've been low inflationary mm. for our, our um, careers far, yeah. far more recently, right? So mm. um, it, it's, it, it, it has mixed results, is my sense, around as being a sort of inflation hedge uh, or a flight to safety compared to currencies. So I think my sense is at these sort of levels of inflation, the, the, you know, a flight to USD or yen has worked better than as a sort of protection strategy um, or, or a flight to safety strategy than, than gold. So if you, if you take sort of this year, look at the gold price, it sort of ramped up hard in 
um, back end of March mm-hmm. um, and then fell away. It's now below where it was at the start of the year. So, you know, it hasn't, in, I mean, it's, it's relatively narrow since, but it hasn't been a particularly helpful in US dollars, a uh, protection strategy against inflation. So, um, yeah, it, it's more of those extreme environments when everything else in your portfolio is going to be doing terribly. Um, it has done pretty well, but in these in the environment where you know generally everything else has done quite well over the last thirty mm-hmm. years, um, it's not sort of been the place for gold. So um, back to your question, yeah, it, it gold certainly not a, a core allocation. It's it's its interest has been increasing as sort of I think investors are now coming to a point where um, concern around the core sort of equity bond component of you know, the 60-40 component of a, of a portfolio and what that looks like with, you know, in the forward you know, interest rate environment we're going into. So certainly under a sort of a regime analysis where you look at how would my portfolio go under different scenarios, gold, you know, starts to come into some of those scenarios. Mm. Um, but it is used certainly in a more alts hedge fund type strategy where they might be doing uh, principally going to be by derivatives and not just a, a buy and hold. Yeah. Um, yeah, certainly they're, they're, whether they're doing um, sort of relative value trades or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, there's, there's plenty of research and work done on currency and commodity as part of a sort of alts strategy. Mm. Yeah, and in my experience dealing with um, funds, um, it seems to be more suited to the trading style strategies uh, rather than the buy and hold. Um, So I've got a few more questions here, Kev. Um, I guess when clients come to you and they're asking about commodities, what are the types of questions that they ask you? Often we'll get like, Sort of explain the difference between gold and owning a gold mining company. Yeah, and, right. And, and they and they're quite um, they're quite different. In, obviously, in terms of one, you've, you're getting the physical one, the other one, you're getting exposure to the operations. So it matters what your expense component is, hmm. um, uh, the financing structure, all, all those sort of things. So um, the difference, yes, it matters what the gold price is to you operate your revenue line, your gold operations, but you know, there's more to an operating company. Um, so that that's sort of, and, and, and maybe that, that the correlation numbers are actually quite interesting for say, uh, RBA does a commodity index where they take the basket of, um, I think it's exported commodities. Mm. Um, and, and you plot that against the ASX and correlation is effectively zero. And, yeah, right. and so, the gut feel would be that there'd be some relationship. And, mm. um, yeah, that hasn't borne fruit. I have you know, looked at that sort of post GFC and then sort of 30 plus year historical and yeah, it doesn't hold up. So, um, yeah. Is that, so just to confirm that, that zero correlation, is that to the actual, the physical, the price of the physical commodities, not the equity linked risk through like gold miners, for example? Yeah, yeah. So if you just take, Simplistically, the ASX 200, and then you take commodity basket of Australian exported goods uh, or commodities, 
then yeah, there's no relationship there. Yeah, right. Now that's I I guess you'd get that question all the time, like because there's a pretty notable example in years gone by of. Uh, Warren Buffett investing in a gold mining company and then people spun that or the media spun that to be Warren Buffett invests in gold. Yeah. But they're quite different exposures, right? Yeah. Um, and it really matters, you know, what your cost base is as a, as a producer. Because mm. um, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if your expense is close to where the spot, spot is, you might be able to make a lot of money because it would probably be a cheap miner that can maybe grow. But if the price moves, you've got to close the mine down. So. Yeah. No, you're not producing at all. So, yeah. whereas gold price falls, you still you still got the gold. Yeah, still got the gold. Yeah. Okay. So, as I think we've kind of covered some of these, but um, what are some of the risks that investors should be aware of if they're looking to allocate to commodities, be it physical futures or a fund? So, physical would be well, yeah, practically how you're doing it, mm. um, and so who are your partners to be able to to do that um, the and and to around that so you really need to think about storage um, yeah if it's non-durable you know what's the quality of the storage am I, am I going to be able to sell it at the quality level that I'm expecting to mm-hmm. in, in the future um, and then security and transport and all those sort of things uh, and they're not immaterial costs to, mm. to worry about um, and then, and they're, they're principally risks in terms of the, the physical risks. Then you're obviously going to have the beta exposure. Yeah. Um, so, am I, you know, am I, what confidence do I have around the, the, the variability of that mm. price? And then the derivative side is more about um, what do I legally own and who is the other, because it will be a contract, and who's the other party to that contract. And how do I how do I get comfort that um, that there's measures in place that uh, they will be able to make good on their commitments to their side of the contract? Mm-hmm. And similarly, mm-hmm. I'd need to be careful about if I'm only putting fifteen dollars a margin up, I am exposed to a hundred, and you don't go frivolously go spending the other eighty five because you may need that to make good on your side of the contract. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, it, it's around. Um, and then it, on the derivative side, it, it is really about understanding not only the sort of, you might have a view on oil price or gold price or whatever it might be, and, and, but you need, to, uh, you, need to, you need to be able to see and understand the supply demand of the backwardization of container of that sort of future market, mm. which can be different to sort of your expectations of what the price might. So you're going to have the beta component and then you're going to have the roll yield mm. component and they may go in different directions to each other or they might compound each other. Is that why when we see um, some, say, ETFs or even unlisted funds where we can see if they have a benchmark, say if it's like the oil price is a benchmark um, and there's a derivative exposure, there can be quite substantial tracking error. Is that why? Yeah, so... Um, I saw some research, and I can't, I can't quote who it was, but they um, looked at gold price uh, back from the 70s, or 80s, I think it was, actually, um, and they, they tracked if you... Well, this is the period they looked at, uh, the, on average, the physical gold price had fallen by I think, 2% per annum. 
over, over the certain period. And if you had bought a three-month future and rolled it, then you would have lost 7% per annum over that period. So it's about a 5% differential. And, and that comes to um, that there is – think about it, that there is significant holding costs, um, but that market tends to be in a, in a position where um, yeah, there, there is a, a, a material difference in the sort of forward price relative to expectations. So – um, yeah, so, so over time, yeah. So, so you, you need to understand, I guess, the yeah, not just the beta, it, it's also the, the role yield component. Mm. Um, and if you're hiring a manager to do it, you want to get comfort around their capability. And therefore, you know, from an alpha perspective, you know, it is relatively fertile ground where you've got betas that gap because of supply demand dynamics. Um, you know, you, you've got... S- and, and then, then you've got sort of the role yield component that can move. So, so active managers you know, have a toolkit or, or an opportunity set, I guess, to 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 add, mm. uh, add alpha. Interesting. Um, okay, so there's probably one more question that I'd like to ask, which is, um, let's say someone comes to you with a 60/40 portfolio in a traditional sense, and they were about to add, they wanted to add. Um, a 10% allocation to commodities, and you can probably take that through whichever kind of commodity group or however you think about this. How would you expect that to change the risk reward profile of the of the balanced or diversified portfolio? So, uh, typically, it's sort of our unless we have a um, yeah. If, if I look at sort of our expectations of uh, when we do our a forecast for commodities over time. Um, it tends to be that it's going to have a lower expected return profile than equities. Um, it's probably going to be more bondish level um, through the cycle. But then it, why, that's not why you're getting exposure to it. it, it it's, so, so you might underpin that by okay, expectations for some um, economic growth that, that then feeds through into commodities. Um, but in terms of why you have it in a portfolio, because if, if, if I had that view, I'd rather get it through equities than I would through the commodity. Yep, for sure. Um, so it's more, it's more the relationship it has to those more extreme economic environments is typically the purpose we'd have in it. So it's not going to do well in our sort of base case economic forecast, typically in a balanced portfolio. It's going to add something to the portfolio in those extreme economic environments when, um, and particularly the, the, the sustained poor economic environments. Um, so when other things are dislocating, your equities and bonds are probably not doing so well. Um, so think very high inflation, think negative inflation. Um, you know, but they're, they're, that's where it sort of you know, stand, stands tall mm. uh, rel- relative to other asset classes. So it's, it's somewhat a hedge, if you like, to yep. those, those um, you know, poor, poor economic environments. And so hasn't, as I, as I sort of said, post-GFC with um, you know, money printing and everything sort of tailwinds, it hasn't tended to have a material uh, allocation in portfolios. But as I say, today with central banks having to um, fight inflation and not necessarily going to be there as our put, um, mm. you know, then... 
the percentage we're putting to the base case is lowering and the percentage we're putting to the more tail cases uh, are increasing. So therefore, yeah, it, it becomes more interesting. Mm. Just as uh, maybe as a, just to catch you off guard here a bit, mate, this is a broad stroke, it's kind of like rule of thumb. When you speak to institutional clients, how many of them would have a position of, say, greater than 5% in commodities? Direct commodities are negligible. But um, in terms of, like, that they had consciously done it, yeah. it, it might be there if you aggregate it all sort of, sort of the alternatives program, mm -hmm. um, then, yeah, it, it may may creep over the line. But mm -hmm. um, in terms of a, a hard allocation, yeah, negligible would be that, that, that high. Well, Kev from Matchison, I really appreciate you taking some time to join us. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thanks, Al. Now that we've got a grasp on the overall asset class and how consultants like Kev would study businesses and strategies and fund managers, it's time to talk about how an expert puts these types of strategies into action in a portfolio. So for the portfolio construction segment, I'm joined by Jamie Nemsis. You may remember Jamie from two episodes he has appeared on the series thus far. To start with, Jamie introduces us to his background on financial markets and investing overall. Jamie, welcome to the Masterclass on Commodities. Thanks, Alan. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? How long have you been an advisor and so on? Uh, basically, my first job was to be an advisor and 26 years on, I've, uh, I'm still advising. Mm -hmm. uh, background, Bachelor of Business, um, CFP, uh, have a whole series of clients um, that uh, range from mums and dads to, to the extremely wealthy. And um, you're Director of Wattle Partners Financial Planning here in Melbourne? Uh, yeah. That's right, and have been for some time. Yeah. Uh, Fee-for-service independent firm. Uh, we have about 180 clients. So today we're talking about commodities and we're going to get uh, your perspective across the whole gamut, I guess, of commodities. We, as we are just talking about, we could probably break it up. Maybe I'll just start with one easy question is, do you use commodities in your portfolios? Yeah, right at the moment we use, um, we use gold and, you know, gold can be seen as a commodity, but, you know, the... the 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 range of commodities is quite large, mm. so gold is an active part of our current model portfolio. Commodities as a whole, where do you think this asset class sits in a portfolio? Oh, I think it, it, it absolutely sits in the alternative bucket. Yeah. Um, so we have two alternative buckets. We have a defensive alternatives and a growth alternatives. Mm -hmm. And depending on the commodity, uh, it will sit in either one of those buckets. The benefit of commodities within the portfolio is that they are uncorrelated to equity returns. And if you look at our traditional portfolio, most uh, assets returns are derived by equity beta. Yep. So once you start looking at alternatives, there's a real push into portfolios for alternatives, then commodities become a part of the decision. In terms of, if it, maybe we break apart, say, gold as a distinct commodity, how do you see the, the risk profile attached to commodities as a whole? Does it add risk, as you said, like maybe you can break this down by commodity if you like, sure. uh, and where it, where it then fits into your two buckets? Um, we are framed and we have been trained to think about specific buckets mm -hmm. and specific um, investments that are available for most people to invest into. So that being uh, managed funds and shares. When you get to commodities, because they are physical assets, there's um, 
the, the industry is getting better at turning these into financial products, but they're not great financial products for you and I and our investors to invest into. Why? Because essentially they're physical. Mm. If you think about hard and soft commodities, hard commodities being, I actually brought a kilo of copper here, Owen, yep, to, to show you. So to be physical or a soft commodity, and I've got some rice. So, yep. you know, it, they take a lot to store. So how do you store that asset? Then how do you turn it into a financial asset that potentially can be through a managed fund or be through a uh, ASX listed investment? Now, to, to be either of them, you need liquidity. It's hard once if you've got a physical asset mm. to turn a physical asset into a liquid investment. So you will see the progression is growing. We use gold. We, we like the ETF securities product. I think mm. you had Kanisha on here the other day. Yeah. Um, we like a few other things, but really this this market is still growing. In terms of framing this, because I think you use some really good examples here and you do have props. For anyone that's listening, we've got some props here. We've got, looks like a couple hundred grams of rice, a kilo of copper, it looks like the size of a baseball. Um, I think you frame this really well around the, the value of gold in comparison to these two and the challenges that um, can present. Yeah, sure. I mean, if it's a physical commodity, you have to store it. So, you know, rice is stored in great big silos. Yeah. Um, gold, and you'll see some gold ETFs and some other precious metals. Precious metals, the name, they're, they're worth a lot of money for not much. For example, if you were to have um, a tonne of gold, it would only be about 35 centimetres by 35 centimetres cubed, and that would be a tonne of gold, and roughly at gold price today, it's worth $80 million. Yeah. To lock, so to lock away $80 million worth of gold, you don't need a very big safe. Yeah. But if you were to do the same thing with, say, copper, a one metre by one metre... Um, one meter by one meter would be a ton of copper, so substantially bigger than gold. But then the value of that copper would only be about, given copper seven and a half thousand dollars, it's probably about fifty-five thousand dollars worth. So you've fifty-five thousand dollars worth versus eighty million, and it's already, uh, you know, something like nine times bigger. Yeah, right. So if yeah, that's why you then can't turn it into a financial product easily. Uh, if you think about commodities and the sophisticated market has a lot of commodity trading, it's all about future delivery of a commodity at a set price. Mm. So there, it's essentially options and a right to buy. Mm. Um, How about then when it comes to listed products, we see some synthetic ETFs. Mm. Um, you know, the Notable ones, say here on the ASX, include like the oil ETF, um, that uses derivatives to get that exposure. Are there limitations when it comes to using those in a portfolio? When you look at any of these commodities, you start looking at the price and you start looking at the volatility of the price and then the characteristics or, if you like, the correlation. That's what you're after if you're looking at it from a financial perspective. So then you're trying to find a product that mirrors that price as a starting point mm. before you add your levels of active management. If you were to go, uh, you know, the oil ETF that you, you mentioned before, they, the way that they were trying to mirror that price didn't work. So they were using options, mm -hmm. rightly so, with physical delivery, and then uh, oil price fell substantially. There's an argument 
you know, can you keep it to maturity? What happens to the value? And it traded negative for a while. So if you were to track that ETF, and I haven't done it today, but I'm sure this is right. <laughs> if you track it with the oil price, you're not getting representation of that price of the commodity. So you're trying to find the base level of any investing is try to find the cheapest, most effective way to represent the price activity of that asset class or the commodity or the sector. Mm -hmm. So, yep. so you're right. There's two ways to potentially take these assets. Have a fund or an ETF that is going to have the physical backing. That's something like gold. Yep. Or go into, which is a very widely traded options market, and try to provide another product that you're using options. So how about in terms of, I guess, who the asset class is suitable for? There are plenty of people that maybe are younger and have a higher risk tolerance that still seem to want to allocate to commodities. And then there are those probably in the later stages of life, I could characterize them that way, who are focused on the defensive side of their portfolio using commodities. How do you see... Uh, I guess, the appetite and the suitability of commodities for those types of investors? It suits both. Uh, and when, when we say commodities, it's so broad, right? It's, yeah. it's similar to you saying to me, how do you, what do you think about the share market? Yeah, that's so, it. you know, if we went, uh, we're using gold and gold is in it for our defensive clients. It's also in our growth clients. So we think okay. it has really interesting characteristics for a portfolio. Now, it's all about the percentages. So it's not necessarily, when you get back to portfolio management, it's not about, at the end of the day, it's not about the individual names that you have in your portfolio, it's the allocation you give them. Yeah. And there's not not many people talk about the allocation. Mm -hmm. So other sectors that we would we want to be exposed to, we would rather the commodity. So... Um, when you look at portfolios, you start thinking about what exposures you want, especially longer-term portfolios. So if you go, hey, we would always rather buy the underlying commodity if it's available. And I think over the next 10 or 15 years, a lot of these commodities are going to be available in products that we're really comfortable invest um, recommending to our clients. Uh, they might be synthetic. They might be asset-backed. Uh, the problem we have is when you say, okay, copper, really easy to, to build a bullish case on copper for the next 10 years, especially with EVs. So you go, well, let's buy BHP rather than the physical. Now, that is essentially taking a lot more equity risk, mm. or you're basically taking equity risk, you're not taking commodity risk. And over the last 30 or 40 years, there's so many different cases where people are going, I've bought it for copper, but the, the, the management of that organisation have, have made the mistake, equity risk, and made the mistake and they haven't seen the returns. Mm. So, yeah, really like commodities. It's how you get exposure to them effectively. ETF guys are really trying to, to open up this market. Mm. How about then, so you mentioned before, it's about the percentages. If you were, if you had a, a client that was maybe say if uh, a stereotype younger slightly more aggressive risk profile and say a retiree slightly more defensive risk profile what would maybe be a typical allocation in a portfolio to say gold yeah so a retiree would be in a defensive allocation would somewhere be be between somewhere between seven and a half and ten percent mm -hmm. of physical gold mm -hmm. um there's a couple more decisions you have to make. You know, sure. Are you hedged on currency? Are you not hedged on currency? Uh, from a accumulator, you know, an accumulator that would be um, 
quite aggressive, then it might be higher. You know, it might be 15%. Mm. It might even be 20%. So once you start breaking down commodities, you can say water is a commodity, right? Mm. So do you have water rights within your portfolio? And you could ask, you could, you could argue really easily that you should have. Now, what is an appropriate allocation? Mm. Then probably three to five percent in water. If you've got three percent, three to five percent in gold. And then you go, well, what else can I buy that ha- has these attributes? Um, noting that they're physical, uh, they're either grown or that they're in um, limited supply, like copper or gold or anything you dig out of the ground. So you could build a portfolio that is a lot more aggressive than a traditional portfolio. This is a real trend, Owen. Uh, client advisors, asset consultants, and clients want less volatile portfolios. Mm. So how do you get less volatile portfolios? It sounds like the opposite to that, but you put in assets within your portfolio that have different um, risk return characteristics and behave differently to equity markets. And what you end up, so a real push to alts, and we're saying some advisors have 40 or 50% of their portfolio in alts, and commodities will take a portion of that 40 or 50%. So it just depends what and how and how you class them. Commodities, I come across a lot of people that allocate directly to commodities, uh, and they don't really seem to have much of a strategy. What, do, what would you say are some of the ways that people tend to go wrong, investors or advisors tend to go wrong when they're allocating to commodities? Yeah, good question. Um, I'd probably answer that by saying, uh, what's the why in holding the commodity allocation? So one of the things that we do with new new clients is that we make them write the why on the right-hand side of every asset. And then yeah. what, what that typically determines is that they're either under-allocated or over-allocated based around the why. So are they holding it for inflation hedge? Are they holding it for negative correlation? Are they holding it because they have a fundamental belief in this sector, commodities, or in the underlying um, commodity, e.g. copper? Yeah. Um, so uh, I also think not understanding the underlying. And that was that's a good example in the oil product. Yeah, mm-hmm. people went into oil expecting a hundred percent mimicking of the oil price, and they didn't get that. So they haven't done the due diligence on the underlying product. Mm-hmm. The last one would be around um, not looking deep enough for alternatives to invest into. A lot of advi- a lot of clients see the ASX as the only way to execute their portfolio. And there's a whole range of ways you can execute exposure to commodities that aren't necessarily listed on the ASIC. How about then in terms of, and I think you, you kind of touched on it there and in a few of your answers, the debate between passive and active mm. for exposures across this asset class? Yeah, I would. So hedge funds aside, right? So we should do a masterclass on hedge funds because yeah. you know, there's a lot of commodity hedge funds. And commodities... Uh, don't have a clear and understandable uh, pattern of pricing or correlations. Sometimes they're very correlated to markets. Sometimes they're not. And, you know, we could, we could actually call that the fourth issue that you talked about before, because the fourth issue is patience in commodities. You have, you have a long period of 
time my old business partner used to call it pat the dog, you know, just pat the dog and it'll be okay, markets will come back, uh, commodities will come back. And I think more, even more than stock markets, commodities can have years and years and years of um, in, in the doldrums, you know, if it's copper and there's too many too many mines being built mm. and they're extracting too fast, guess what happens? Uh, price goes down. Yep. So... Um, in terms of active management, I still think this industry, this market is, apart from hedge funds, is still um, at its infancy. So just getting the rep- representation of the commodity price is the first activity. Yeah. Then the next activity is, well, can you add value over on top of that? At the moment, there's not many, a handful of active um, options, either managed funds or listed vehicles that are, uh, are approaching this from a real active approach. Mm. So if you're thinking about an active manager, uh, whether it's in gold or other commodities, what questions would you ask them? Yeah, okay. So first two, uh, what I would ask any manager about anything yeah. is the first one is, what can you guarantee me? Yeah. Um, so if that's mimicking the index or if that's outperformance or that's, I think that's a really good question to ask any fund manager. Mm-hmm. And then the next question is how much of their own money do they have invested in this vehicle and and why do they have it invested? Now, more than if we're, we're talking about commodities, there's typically a reason to include it in the portfolio. So I'd love to know what the portfolio manager's reason is for holding it there apart from, you know, this yeah. old concept of all their money is hurt money. You don't want it all to be hurt money, but no, you, you, you want them to be invested. And I think that question that we came across before, Owen, where you go, what does this product do? Is it holding the physical commodity somewhere in a vault somewhere, or does it have the right to buy the the commodity at some point so it's synthetic or it's an option product? So understanding that I think is the key to... Um, not not making mistakes because a lot of mistakes can be put back to the investor. You know, you sell at the bottom, you buy at the top, mm. but just making sure you understand the product that you're taking your money and investing it in. Mm. Okay. Final question, Jamie, is in which market environments do you expect, uh, say, gold to perform well for a client's portfolio? Or is it something that you, it's kind of kept in there in perpetuity. It's just whether you go hedged or unhedged. How do you think about that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so gold is slightly different than than the rest of commodities. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you, th- so we would um, we've got an active decision around hedging. It's all about long term um, pricing of what currency has, and when it's two standard deviations from the mean, we're unhedged, and vice versa, we're hedged. Mm-hmm. Uh, gold has been a long term asset within our portfolio. We've held it since 2012. We continue to hold it now. Um, the but uh, commodities at theory level mm. should be linked to inflation. So we're going into a well, we are in it a inflationary environment. We mm. haven't been in it since the 1970s. So if you think about just core CPI, it has two factors. It has oil feeds straight into it, and so does food prices feed straight into it. Now, it's mm. a bit reversed because they feed into it, not the other way around. But there's an argument that commodities, the only thing that is a real inflation hedge are commodities because they're not, you know, to, to, to grow this again is going to cost a lot more than it did last year, a year before, a year before mm. that. It's, so uh, a bigger allocation, if we, we hold... 
um, inflation at this level for three, four, five years, I think there'll be a bigger allocation in portfolios to commodities to try to starve off the effects of inflation. Mm. Well, Jamie Nemesis, Wardle Partners, thanks for joining me in this masterclass. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to this masterclass on the Australian Investors Podcast. If you enjoyed hearing our experts' insights, I want to hear from you. Putting together the masterclasses does require days of efforts, flying to Sydney and recording and in production. But if you find these sessions valuable, I want to keep doing them. And the only way I know is if I hear from you. We've got one more masterclass coming up, which is on global small caps. And we've got four great guests on that topic. If you're a fundy, if you're a consultant, an investment researcher or a financial planner and you want to get involved with the Masterclass series, please reach out to me. You'll find a link on the Rask websites, any of the Rask websites. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.